Greetings, everyone. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. We host the Iroquois History and Legends podcast. We dive into a deep, dark part of history that very few people have ever covered. We cover the history and culture of the Iroquois League, also known as the Haudenosaunee, or Six Nations. United together, they formed a representative government that predates all democracy in the Western Hemisphere. They interacted with almost every major European power that was involved in North America. Yet, you seem to know nothing about them. Round out your knowledge. Look us up. We're Iroquois History and Legends. I-R-O-Q-U-O-I-S. Iroquois History and Legends. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Our narrative takes us to Florida and the arrival of French Protestant Huguenot colonists in 1564. French Huguenots made two attempts to establish a haven in North America. In 1562, naval officer Jean Ribot led an expedition that explored Florida and the present-day southeastern USA and founded the outpost of Charles Fort on Paris Island, South Carolina. The French Wars of Religion precluded a return voyage, and the outpost was abandoned. In 1564, Ribot's former lieutenant, René Goulin de Laudonnière, launched a second voyage to build a colony. He established Fort Caroline in what is now Jacksonville, Florida, as a safe haven for Huguenots, who were being persecuted in France because they were Protestants rather than Catholics. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. Welcome back to the tale of French Florida. The French decided that the spot to begin their colony should be further upstream along the St. John's, in far enough that they could hide from the Spaniards who might be trolling the coast looking for them. And this is where they began construction of Fort Caroline, Caroline being a form of Charles named after Charles IX, King of France. The fort was constructed with relatively equal housing except for Laudanere, who had the largest house of any other inhabitant, and he brought over his own maid. Of course, the rumors started to swirl right away that this maid was actually his mistress. However, there's no concrete evidence to ever suggest this. Laudanere seems to have been a devout Huguenot. Another problem for Laudanere were the nobles who were part of this expedition, who came along. We haven't talked too much about them yet, because they're not terribly useful. They have some money, some means, and a lot of these guys are going to be younger sons. These are guys who aren't going to inherit the titles. They're not going to get the estates. They're not going to get the money. And so while they're part of the noble class, their older siblings will basically get everything. So they're out to make it rich all on their own. These are the younger sons. It's a class of men who are entitled, literally entitled, they're not used to working with their hands. They see the work is below them. And Laudanere is making them participate in the construction of the fort, do manual labor. And now for the first time in their lives, they're feeling inferior because even the basic worker who they scraped off the streets of Paris is more useful than they are. And what these young men want more than anything is to make for themselves a fortune and go back to France. They want to be there as little an amount of time as possible. They don't care about starting a colony. They're not particularly interested in the Huguenot cause as far as the New World is concerned. They want to make a fortune and return home. And just based on these early trades with the Native Americans while the Tamuka are helping to build their fort, Lemoyne writes that all these French nobles doing these trades that they saw as one-sided to their benefit convinced themselves they were going to be loaded beyond their imagination. 
And so this group of nobles didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to waste any more of their time as they saw it building this colony. They wanted to go off and find the sources of this gold and the silver. They were on this expedition for adventure, and that's what they wanted. And so even before any real scouting could be done, even before the fort was set up, crops could be planted, anything like that, this group of nobles were begging Laudanere, hey, it's time to go. Allow me to go out into the world, this new world, this Florida, and find my fortune. That's why I came along. Laudanere, of course, refuses. At this point, the French really don't know what's out there. And God forbid you send these spoiled rich kids out into the country to make first impressions on behalf of the entire French nation. Not going to happen. Laudanere, who soon perceived that our men were acting avariously in their dealings, now forbade on pain of death any trading or exchange with the Indians for gold, silver, or minerals, lest all such should be put into the common stock for the benefit of all. And as angry as this made the nobles, what made them angrier is that Laudanere made an exception for one guy named Pierre Gambi, who was an associate of Gaspard de Caligny, the great leader of this entire operation and patron back in France, the admiral himself. Pierre Gambi may have actually been in the noble house of Caligny, and he was given free reign to not only trade with the natives, but he could travel about. He could leave the fort. He could leave Laudonaire's domain completely and do what he wished. And this is where the accounts go into a digression about Pierre Gambi, which is unrelated to what the rest of the French are doing because he's off on his own, but should serve as a warning. Gambi went off, and he found a tribe living all alone on an island of their own in the middle of the St. John's River. Between his force of personality and the goods that he had, he managed to impress the chief so much that he gave him one of his daughters. And soon, Gambi became the chief's son-in-law. In this familial but also political position, he began to run things around the village, requiring the men in the village to go and obtain things for him in exchange for the few metal bits he had and the authority that he could wield over them. The chief, under the spell of Gambi, gave up more and more power to him until he was a tyrant on an island of his own. Once he had been there for about a year, he told everyone that he was going back to the French. He was going to find Fort Caroline again and reconnect with his old friends. A few young men decided to go with him as security for his journey back to Fort Caroline. And late at night, when Gambi was bending over a fire, tending to it, a native split his head in half with an axe. And then the men took his stuff and left his body on the fire. Putting that digression aside, Laudanere didn't spend much time encouraging the colonists to farm. They planted some things, but not nearly enough to sustain the numbers that they had. He assumed that there would be constant resupply from France, which would probably be not the smartest thing to assume, considering what happened to the last French expedition. The security of the seas at this time and the wars between the empires would seem to indicate that supply might not come, and maybe you should spend some time planting food. But also, here we are in August of 1564, the natives were supplying corn. They were bringing gifts. As the different villages introduced themselves to the French, they would provide them with food, a welcoming gift. The French assumed, for some reason, that those gifts would just keep rolling in. However, Laudanere did not hold up his end of this alliance, whether he understood it or not. And so he should be under no expectation that the corn would keep coming. The welcoming is over, the obligations were not met, and so the shunning begins. Furthermore, in one of the villages, there was a great storm at night. And the cornfields caught on fire, some 500 acres or so, burned to the ground, destroyed. 
And the Tamuka blamed the French. They blamed their firearms. A technology they didn't quite understand yet, but they knew that the French could command fire at will whenever they wanted. And so the natives blamed this thing that they didn't quite understand. But the French didn't set fire to their cornfields. The truth doesn't always matter in cases like this. You can see now the divide that is growing between these two people that are supposedly allied with one another. History isn't clean. History isn't simple. It's very complicated. It doesn't care about your feelings. In one of the villages, the French saw a firstborn child sacrifice. So they were sacrificing babies, probably to elicit the goodwill of a spirit. He also witnessed women grieving the death of their husbands in wartime. After coming to the graves of their husbands, they cut off their hair below the ears and scattered upon the graves, and then cast upon them the weapons and drinking shells of the deceased as memorials of the brave men. This done, they return home, but are not allowed to marry again until their hair has grown long enough to cover their shoulders. They let their nails grow long on both fingers and toes, cutting the former away, however, at the sides, so as to leave them very sharp, the men especially. And when they take one as an enemy, they ink their nails deep in his forehead and tear the skin so as to wound and blind him. What he is describing is the revenge widows would take on captives from enemy tribes. Often the female natives on the eastern seaboard of North America were the worst torturers of captives among these native tribes. In 1953, the U.S. National Park Service established the Fort Caroline National Memorial along the southern bank of the St. John's River near the point that commemorates Laudonniere's first landing. The exact site of the former Fort Caroline is unknown. However, the memorial is generally accepted as being in the vicinity of the original fort. Next time, we continue the saga of 16th century Protestant settlements in the territory of Florida. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text history that's H I S T O R Y using the code 30605.